Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll probably mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show, podcast, to make sure you automatically hear about each episode. Subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Today's show will be on the legal issues you must consider when choosing egg or sperm donation or surrogacy. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for both infertility and adoption, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. If you're struggling with infertility, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. For comprehensive resources, including infertility information, treatment options, and ways to save money, you can go to their website, faringfertility.com. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletters. We would really love to have you sign up. It is our way to form our community, and we share information specifically with that newsletter. So please sign up for the two-times-a-week newsletter on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption three times a week, and a recent blog you might enjoy was yesterday's blog titled, Thorny Decisions in Egg and Sperm Donation. In specific, we're talking about um, some parents choose that if only one parent could be genetically related to the child, they might choose for neither parent to be genetically related. And we're talking about that decision and what's in the best interest of the child. So please join in the discussion at, at, that, web, at, at that blog, which is found at creatingafamily.org slash blog. This, well, this show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, including Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which is part of the world's largest network of sperm bank. And they provide semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient leader in the field of infertility. They have seven offices in New Jersey and they maintain an IVF delivery rates well above the national average, and they offer the latest and validated technical solutions to help hopeful patients increase their chance for success in the shortest period of time possible. Today's show is on the legal issues we think you must consider when you are choosing egg donation or sperm donation or surrogacy or really, quite frankly, embryo donation, any form of third-party reproduction. Our guests talk about the all-important questions of, the, of what legal issues to consider that, are, that could crop up in third-party reproduction are Catherine Tucker. She is a reproductive law attorney practicing in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and Stephanie Caballero. She is a reproductive law specialist in California. Both Stephanie and Catherine come to this area of practice through their own personal journey through infertility. Uh, journey may not be the right word, struggles 
uh, Horrorville, whatever. Uh, it's uh, their own issues with infertility have led them and, and, and informed their practice. I should also mention that both uh, uh, Stephanie and Catherine are sponsors of Creating a Family, so I, I sincerely thank you. They believe in education to the patient community, and it is through their support that this show happens. So thank you, ladies. I certainly appreciate it. And welcome both Stephanie Caballero and Catherine Tucker to Creating a Family. Thank you, Don. Happy to be here. Good. Thank you, Don. Well, the first question I, I um we actually uh, filmed uh, both of you uh, doing a we're launching a new uh, video series called a Talk with the Expert series when we uh, launch our new website uh, at the end of this year. And so uh, last week at the uh, American uh, let's see American let's see ARDA how do I say that the American Academy of Assisted Reproductive Attorneys Technology Attorneys um, uh, we. Uh, I asked you each what were the most pressing issues that you thought that the patient community needed. And, Catherine, uh, you had mentioned that the one of the top questions you get is the distinction between known and anonymous and then and how, and, and different levels of contact. Well, I smiled because we got three questions, um, a varying, uh, not all uh, directly on that topic, but touching on that topic for today's show. The first one is, is uh, long, so I'm going to summarize it. And it's from Bethany. And uh, her question is revolving around the distinction between known, and in her case, she's using the term unknown, but I know that, that, uh, Catherine, you make a distinction between known and anonymous. And then Bethany's issues are she she wants to know what levels of contact are available um, through these different options. So let's break her question down, and I'd like to start with, Let's get our terminology straight on uh, – I'm sorry, I don't know if I mentioned that she is speaking about egg donation. So uh, they're moving to egg donation. What are their options as far as – and what's the correct terminology when finding a an egg donor as far as knowledge about the egg donor, contact about with the egg donor? Well, Don, typically when we're talking about egg donors, we refer to someone who's either a known egg donor or an anonymous egg donor. A known egg donor is going to be somebody that you already know, your friend, your sister, your cousin, somebody that you know before you start the process. While an anonymous egg donor is going to be somebody that you don't already know, that you're matched with, whether it be through an egg bank, an agency, a clinic, or some other method, it's somebody that you did not know prior to starting this process. With the anonymous egg donors, we use that term even though there really are different levels of contact. So you can set up, You really the parameters are going to be between you and your egg donor, what everybody is comfortable with. And you can set up those levels of contact that you feel are most appropriate and that your donor feels are most appropriate for the situation. So that means that an anonymous egg donor, we're still going to call them anonymous, but you could even get to know them perhaps a little bit by exchanging some emails or possibly even ha- having a telephone call or you can get to know them a lot by even exchanging names, addresses, or any other information that everybody feels is appropriate. So that's really, there's a wide level of anonymity or breaking through the anonymity, and it's really what everybody feels is most appropriate for that situation. Stephanie, what are you seeing now? Are you seeing a movement towards more people um, choosing to have some information about their anonymous donor, or do you still see most people preferring to have it to be truly anonymous where they have no identifying information and no ability to contact them? 
That's that's a good question. What I'm seeing is actually um, it's not for – it used to be um, for the couple or the individual. You know, I want to meet my egg donor. I want to know what she's like. Now the question or or what I'm seeing is I don't need to meet her. You know, my client says that. But I want my child. If my child wants to be able to, I want my child to be able to get in contact with her. I am seeing, especially this past year, past six months, a huge increase in cases like that where really it is what's in the best interest of the child. So that actually saying. makes me feel good because we have been singing that song, not pushing one way or the other, but pointing out that, that it's ultimately all decisions we make in any form of reproduction it should be made in the best interest of children. And it's helpful to inform our decisions based on what may be something that our children will want. And that leads me in, in in the future, not as of course as they're very young. That leads me into a question from Sarah. She is wanting pretty much exactly what you just said. Uh, uh, her question is whether or not how, how she can maintain contact enough so that her child will have uh, medical information in the future. Uh, so, what are you seeing, Stephanie? How, how do you maintain? enough contact where you can get medical information. In particular, Sarah was talking about when her child was an adult, but I can envision a scenario where um, even as as a child that Sarah as the mom will be wanting and might need information. Yeah, a lot of times if you work with an agency, and um, we just had this come up with an agency where, you know, their child, um, you know, they had an issue with their child, and so the agency reaches out to the donor to get that medical information. And in the contract, it, it definitely says, or it should say if it doesn't, that the donor agrees to supply um, what the medical information for the benefit of the child. But again, through these, um, like the donor sibling registry, I've, I have the, the, you know, the the, my clients and the donor sign up for that, and that's a way that they stay in touch with the donor through the years, you know, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years down the road, and that really is a great resource, and a lot of my clients have utilized that. Do you find that donors are hesitant? You're speaking of the donor sibling registry, and okay. in that case, both the recipient, the intended parents as well as the donor um, can sign up to receive information in the future. Um, Correct. Do you find that uh, that has been re- well received from your donors or, or not? Yeah, the donors really get it. I think they actually were the ones that were much more comfortable with whatever type of contact, whether it's with the parents or any future child, and, and they really are receptive. Now, for those donors that aren't, then they don't get matched with, uh, you know, the the patient or the client who really wants that type of relationship. Um, and there are still, you know, a few donors who are like, you know, I'm going to donate to you, and, yes, you can reach out to me for medical information, but I don't want to have any personal contact with you. So. Catherine, are you seeing the same, whereas that, that there are, uh, that more donors now are open to potential contact, even if only through the donor sibling registry? I think it really is a very individualized thing. It really depends on the donor. Some donors just want to maintain as much distance as possible with the intended parents as possible. However, generally all donors are going to be open to having contact for purposes of medical treatment of the child, and they will agree to do that in an anonymous manner working through the child's pediatrician. It's really just an issue of whether they're willing to have social contact with either the parent's or the child down the road, that really 
is an individualized decision that depends on that particular donor. The issue that I think is extremely important for all prospective parents to be thinking about is you need to address this at the outset because if having social contact with the donor, either by yourself as the parents having social contact or leaving that decision up to your child, if that's important to you, then you need to have that established at the outset to make sure that you're selecting a donor that is both agreeable to that kind of contact and that you're working with a program that's going to facilitate that kind of contact. So if you're looking at some of the lower-cost options, for example, international egg donation or egg banks, those are, for many people, very attractive options because of the cost, but it's going to be much more difficult and sometimes impossible to establish contact with donors through those types of donations versus if you're working with an agency or if you're working with a clinic that has its own in-house donor pool, you're much more likely to be able to locate a donor and have an arrangement set up where there's the possibility of future contact. Well, you, that you, great segue into um, a discussion about egg banks. Uh, it it certainly seems to me that that the whole idea of, of of being able to now bank eggs is going to fundamentally change the face of egg donation. I was interested in at um, ASRM, uh, you know, the discussions around egg banking, and it's it's interesting in particular because the ASRM it was only last year took egg banking, egg freezing, I should say, off of their experimental uh, list. But nonetheless, I, I my perception is that it's going to make a significant change. Um, and so I'd like to hear both of you talk about what type of changes you think egg banking will make. And, Catherine, we'll start with you because you just mentioned one, and that is, uh, is it impossible uh, to uh, use a uh, donor from a egg who's banked eggs and still have the option for and, and let's make a distinction in this discussion between medical and social. So let's ask about both. Is it possible, let's start with medical. Is it possible to uh, have medical contact uh, with a anonymous donor from an egg bank? Well, I think that in the United States, the egg banks are going to try to facilitate contact if it's for medical purposes because, of course, they recognize the importance to the child of having that information. But you know, we need to look at realities. And the reality is that the, is that the eggs may have been taken from the donor a couple of years ago before that they were used. So now we've added that time frame that has given the donor time to move on with her life and, most importantly, possibly not keep her contact information current with the egg bank. And so there's that practical issue of are we going to be able to locate the donor to try to have that kind of con- contact with her so that she can assist with this medical issue that has come up with the child. And I think that that's a very real concern with the egg banks um, that may be less of a concern when you're working with an agency or a clinic and doing a fresh cycle where you've got the donor right there and if there's a medical issue that comes up shortly after birth, it might be easier to track down that donor in that situation. Okay, so that's medical. Stephanie, any thoughts on medical contact and what you're seeing with egg banks before we then move on to talk about uh, social contact with donors uh, who donate to egg banks? Yeah, I think it's going to be very uh, clinic-based, meaning, you know, is your clinic going to be able to provide further medical information and be able to reach out to your donor? Because remember, 
most of these are doctor's offices, and doctor's offices are not set up like agencies to either facilitate either, you know, communication between, um, you know, the, the recipients and the donor and or medical information. So it's definitely, I think, I think if you use an egg bank, you need to find out, number one, you know, how much contact am I going to be able to have? Number one is if my child is going to be, you know, developing something that you didn't know about, or number two, if my child wants to have any contact. Okay. So, and, and let's shift now to talking about social contact. It, from what I'm seeing, you're not uh, the egg banks, and, and I and I may be wrong with yeah. this. You guys would have seen more than I have seen, um, but I've not seen that there's been much interest in from an egg bank standpoint for facilitating social contact. Stephanie, have you seen any? No, and I think it's really going to happen five and ten years from now when, you know, the, the, the egg banks realize, wow, you know, what's in the best interest of the child? You know, we've got that with egg donation, but again, we're dealing with recipients and donors at that same time, and that donor is donating specifically to that recipient. Whereas at an egg bank, you know, the donor is, is removed. She is, she's really working with the clinic, and it's the purpose of, of, you know, banking eggs for future use. It's it's a different model, so I really I really think that hasn't caught up with egg banks. And I may be wrong; there may be an egg bank that's you know trying to help facilitate that. But again, too, you're dealing with you know one egg donor. It's sort of like you know sperm donation, one person I, and and many yeah. vials. You know, so I wonder it can if be it, done. Yeah, because because sperm banks have been able to. Yep. Uh, to be, have been able to do that, but I um, I haven't seen that. I, I'm sitting here imagining a scenario where I hadn't really thought about the donor sibling registry, and that may provide some of the some of the egg bank. I mean, some of the sperm banks have their own registries and forums, uh, and that may be. But that's not where they're at right now. Uh, no, I really don't think that's where they're at. But I think that's you know it's definitely going to be a question. It's going to come up. It really is. Yeah. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about the legal issues you must consider when choosing third-party reproduction. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can find me at Dawn. No, nope. <laughs> you can find me. We've just continued that one. I need to correct me here. You can find uh, connect with me at Creating a Family, all one word. On Facebook, there are three ways to connect. One is the Creating a Family Facebook page. The second is the Creating a Family Facebook support group. And the third is me personally at dawn.davenport1. The easiest way to connect is just to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box. And it pops up uh, both the, fa- the page and the group pop up, and you can like the page and join the group. It is a closed group, but if you... Uh, uh, click to join, I will let you in. We have a question from Ruthanne, which uh, is a is is a good one. She is thinking ahead. She is in the process right now of looking at agencies, egg donation agencies, and she wants to know how they keep track of donor locations for the 21 years of contact of contact potential. And actually, I would add, uh, it could even be beyond 21 years. Uh, Catherine. She raises a good issue, uh, and that is that uh, we, we're working with the typical uh, egg donor is uh, a woman in her early 20s, early to mid 20s. Um, she may not uh, be, and probably isn't, uh, established in her career. She's not established in her geographic location. So, 
what are the different ways agencies utilize for a person who is looking at agencies and wants to make this a criteria? It's important to them, so they want to ask the right questions to find out if the agency has a policy in place. What type of questions, what should, what should people look for when choosing an agency if this was important to them? Well, one of the things that I think is important in this regard is whether the intended parents and the donor have a direct contract between them because this is something that can be addressed specifically in that contract, requiring the donor to keep her address and other contact information updated for a certain period of time. And that can be done in a way to still maintain her anonymity, as well as requiring her to provide certain information that is going to help us track her down in the future if we have to. So if she provides a copy of her driver's license, whether it be to the agency, to her attorney, or even to the intended parent's attorney, this is all something that can be used to have that information handy now so that we can use it in the event that we do need to track her down. But 21 years, like you said, Dawn, is a long time. And when we're talking about a donor who's 24 years old, 21 is going to put them at 45. So at that point, it's, you know, it's really it is very difficult to get that kind of commitment from somebody, but the time to be thinking about it is at the outset, the time that you're making a match before you've gone through with the donation because that really is the best time to be collecting the information that you're going to need down the road. Okay, so one suggestion would be to find out if the clinic requires that in their records they have a copy of the driver's license that would be available to the intended parents if down the road they needed it. Um, uh, what other things would they, uh, would somebody who's looking for an agency want to ask? Uh, Stephanie, anything else uh, that, that any other uh, criteria that, that for uh, later tracking that is typical or uh, contractual uh, between the intended parents? Yeah, the- you, got, you definitely do need to put it in the contract. So first you need to talk to the agency about it. How do they handle it? And most agencies um, get also driver's license and social security number and if you have the, and obviously the date of birth. If you have those three, you can find the address of that donor at any point in time. And let's face it, she's 20. Guaranteed, she's probably going to move five times in her 20s at least. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I moved in my 20s. So <laughs> you just have yeah. really yeah. you just that's what I tell my clients. You you got to assume she's going to move a lot. So what I did in my contract Instead of making the donor, you know, give her new address to the agency every time she moves, because she's going to forget. I mean, five, ten years from now, she's even maybe, you know, she's going to forget. So what I do is I just, I just make it to where the donor has agreed to allow the agency to locate her. And I, and I pretty much make it endless. The child's for life. And, and chances are with the screening, you, you're not going to um, need the donor 15, 20 years from now. But you just never know, right? So that, that's mm-hmm. what I do. And then right. the donor knows that, you know, she could be contacted, you know, and I'm sure they don't really think about this, but she could. She could be contacted, you know, 15, 20 years from now. Unlikely, though, the recent case I had, it was about, three years down the road. So usually if you're, you're going to know either right away or fairly shortly thereafter if you're going to be needed for medical information. True, but uh, what we don't know is uh, there for some people uh, and uh, some, for some donor-conceived people, we know that uh, having information about their genetic background is very important. For other donor-conceived people, it doesn't appear to be important at all. We don't know where 
this particular child is going to fall on that spectrum. So I would You're absolutely right. Then that you know, it just brings us all always back to best interest of child. Yeah, exactly. Or well as, as much as we can <laughs> as much as we can, that is the aim. So another things that to uh, uh to look at uh would be that making sure that you've got the the agency and number one specifies it in their contract. And number two, gets things practical things like uh driver's license, uh uh social security number, uh date of birth, uh and uh uh, things like that, because you're right. If you've got enough of that information with a private eye, you could probably track the person down if you needed to. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Excellent. All right. And um, this is a question from Jonathan. He's. Uh, I'll read a specific question, but I actually want to kind of just change it a bit. He, he wants to know whether it's best to use. And again, looking for uh, he and his partner are looking for an egg noter, um, and they're wanting to know whether it's best to go with a. Uh, egg donor clinic, an egg donor agency, or an egg bank. What I'm not sure we can answer a the best question because I, I think that that is uh, uh, provides a lot. Uh, well, it's a, it's a value judgment, and it depends on uh, the person and what they, but where they prioritize and what they think is important. But I think what we can do uh, to help Jonathan is to uh, specify some distinctions between. Uh, egg donation, uh, finding your egg donor through your infertility clinic, through an egg donation agency, or through an egg bank. Catherine, can you throw out, just tell us a, a distinction you see between those three, or a potential distinction? Well, it really, you're going to have a much broader range of choices if you're working with an agency, because first of all, you get to pick which agency you want to work with, and you can work with any agency throughout the country. And any of their donors. So you're going to have access to thousands of potential donors if you're working with an agency. If you're working with a clinic, you're going to have access to only their their own internal pool of donors, which are often going to be local donors. And for some people, that's a plus, and for others, it's a minus. Some people don't want to take the chance of running into their donor at the grocery store. Other people really don't care or even view it as a positive. So with the agency donors, looking at donors across the country, if you want somebody who is far away, you can do that with the agency. You can have a tougher time doing that with a clinic with a local pool. And then looking at the egg banks, again, these are eggs that have already been taken from the donor and frozen. So you're going to have a limited supply of donors available there. So it's basically whatever that egg bank happens to have in supply and however however number of eggs they have for that particular donor. But you're going to have much fewer choices when working with an egg bank. So it really really depends on how picky you personally are about what you would like to see in your donor in terms of which of those is going to be a a better choice for you personally. Okay, Stephanie. So so the choice is available. Um, Although, Catherine, one of the things that uh, the choices is is one distinction, the uh, choice in donors, the variety of choices that you have to choose from. uh, uh Catherine was saying it's greater for uh agencies less so for clinics. Um I was hearing what you were saying about banks and that surprises me because I ha- would have thought that that the the one of the purposes of of banking frozen eggs would be that you could get uh, a greater variety. So um that I hadn't thought of. I guess I was thinking in terms that that would also provide you with a greater greater choices. Uh, Catherine, any thoughts? Uh, uh, am I misunderstanding you on that? 
No, and I think it's just because egg banking is so new, so they just haven't had the time to build up the banks yet. For example, one of the large banks in the country, I was looking at their donor pool, and they had 80 donors available. And if you figure that you know a particular set of intended parents may have preferences relative to something like hair color, race, height, and things like that, you've just narrowed down that list of 80 down to possibly 15 or 20. So I think it's, you know, that's how it is today. It may very well be different with egg banking technology improving and being more widespread. Five or ten years from now, we may be looking at egg, egg banks as having the most variety of donors. But, yeah, you know, for the time being, they just haven't built that yet. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, Stephanie, let's talk about some other distinctions then between uh, getting an egg donor through a clinic, through an agency, or through a bank. Um, any that come off the top of your head as far as distinctions between those? Yeah, Catherine's right. You're going to have the most flexibility typically and the widest range of possibilities with an agency. Um, and you're going to be able to, you know, for the most part, within the agency's guidelines and within, you know, FDA rules and all that, be able to to plan your egg donation the way you want it. Um, then um, you're going to have less flexibility typically with a doctor program. So if if you want contact and you want contact a certain way, um, you know, agency, most doctor programs are, you know, strictly anonymous. Um, like Catherine says, they're local. Um, uh, so, you know, you're going to have the, you know, not as much flexibility. And then with the egg bank, there isn't going to be, hardly any flexibility, um, and then, you know, the, because it's so new, she's absolutely right, the choices are, are limited. Cost factor, though, the egg bank is going to be your cheapest way to go. So, you know, so you, and, and I know cost is a, is a big issue. So you know, it, you know, it all it all depends. You know, like you said, that was a re- that was a kind of a loaded question. It was like, how do yeah. we answer that? It's yeah. definitely very personal, and it, it based on, but based on what each person needs and and what they can also do, you know. So I would definitely say, you know, take your time, do your research. Remember, if an egg bank is run by a doctor. You can still ask questions. It's okay. You know, sometimes I think when we when we get in front of a medical professional, it's like, well, it's the doctor. The doctor knows all. But you know, your egg donors for life. Uh, whether you use an egg bank or an agency or a doctor, so you should be able to ask questions and get as you know, ask as many questions as you like, and you really should. Yeah, amen on that one, Catherine. One of the things when we're thinking of cost, one of the things to think about. Uh, in general, cost being one of the issues, is the number of eggs you get. Let's talk a little about that. When you are working with an individual donor who has been matched with or you have chosen uh, for a particular set of intended parents or parent, um, then all the eggs, unless you're doing a shared cycle, all the eggs that uh, are retrieved from a particular donor um, belong to that set of parents. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so it would not be unheard of to get 15 eggs out of one cycle. Uh, so that gives you 50, as the intended parents, that gives you 15 tries for embryos. Now, not, not all will fertilize. How does that factor in, and how do you, when you're talking with your clients, how do they factor that in to the, the cost assessment? 
Well, it really cuts both way, both ways because you can get 15 eggs and have 15 tries at getting a good embryo, but you can also end up with no eggs or one egg or two eggs or three eggs. And with an egg bank, you've got that guarantee because with the egg bank, the cycle has already taken place. And so you know how many mature eggs there are and how many mature eggs that you are getting. And that's a huge benefit because it really takes that particular risk out of the equation. Anytime you're doing a fresh cycle, and that's typically going to be with a clinic donor pool or an agency donor, you've got that risk because you have no idea how the cycle is going to go. You can try to kind of guess based on the donor's numbers, how things look, her lab values, how things look, and how her past cycles have gone. But donors' bodies, just like anyone's bodies, are unpredictable, and you don't know what you're going to end up with at the end. And so there's that risk and uncertainty that comes anytime you're doing a fresh IVF cycle. So the you know, you have to really balance in that, you know, you're paying more, you've got the potential of getting many more mature eggs and many more attempts to get a good embryo, but there's just that uncertainty that's gonna come over that. Yes, you're right, because it it cuts both ways. You may end up with more eggs um, and the other thing, uh, okay, so so number of eggs can cut both ways depending on whether you're going with a fresh cycle through a clinic or an agency or whether you're going with a bank. There are but with some an families. egg bank, though, I Go hate ahead. to interrupt, yes. but with an egg bank, no, though, please. you're getting eggs. You still don't know if you're going to get embryos, right? Um, right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, although, so, don't some of the banks, though, have the policy that uh, if uh, the eggs, that you get additional uh, additional vial of eggs, if it... How does that work? What are you saying? I'm trying to. Remember. I think they probably do, but I just don't want the the you know anybody to go in thinking there's a guarantee. Yeah, there's a guarantee. You know how many eggs you're getting, but you know just like with anything, it's all biology. You don't know if you're going to get embryos, and then you know you don't know if the embryo is going to attach. You know, there's you know you got to get through one hoop and one hoop and one hurdle and one hurdle. But I think they do. I think the egg banks do offer, you know, if you don't get any embryos, you know, you get so many eggs until you get an embryo, I think. Yeah, I think, well, I think some may be doing that. I actually have to go back and look. Yeah, I do too. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. Uh, Well, they're also new too. I think they're also, they're tweaking their programs as well. That's, uh, it's it's really a a brand new type of model. Um, For some people, they like the idea of working with, I've heard this, uh, one specific donor so that they get the eggs from that donor and no one else, uh, there, there won't be any half-siblings out there. There won't be any other slightly biologi- half-biologically connected children to their children. Um, it seems to me that that's only the case if the donor doesn't donate again, and, and I don't think that you can contractually, well, I guess you could, but you'd have to pay more if you're going to contractually bind, bind her to donating to only them and to no one else. I um, had a case like that, Don. Okay, then okay, let's talk about that issue because I, I do hear people say that they don't, one of the reasons they're going with an egg donor is they only want, they do not want, versus a bank, is that they do not want to uh, share the genetic material uh, with, with another family. So explain yes. that, that, how that cuts and, both ways. It, they did, and actually uh, we drafted the contract, and she agreed that she would not donate again, and she was successful for these intended parents, and they actually paid her for the five cycles that she could not do because she agreed not to ever be an egg donor again. 
so they they did that. Yeah, it was very interesting. It was very very important to these these recipients that you know they minimize um, the genetic siblings for their children. It was incredibly important to them, and so rather than have the contact with the donor, that is what they did. And of course, they obviously had, you know, the income to be able to do this. But I, I even think, even if they didn't, I think they would have scraped it together, no matter you know how they could get it, just because it was incredibly important to them. And they realized that the donor could, of course, have her own children. You know, you can't you can't prohibit her from doing that. But yeah, they did that. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm I'm going to guess that. That doesn't happen frequently simply because of the cost issue. So you don't have any guarantees that just because you have all the eggs from this particular cycle, it is not uncommon, uh, and I don't know what percentage you guys actually probably do know, uh, of egg donors who do repeat donations. Catherine, do you have a feel? I have not seen any statistics on that, but just do you have a feel for how many donors do repeat cycles? John, that's a great question, and I don't actually have that information. Stephanie, do you have any idea? Yeah, I think um, I think I would probably have to just say that most donors, you know, a great great many of them do it again because uh, it's a relatively, um, as medical procedures go, it's a relatively um, you know on the low end. Uh, you know, it's simple. You're only put under for about ten minutes. There's no right. stitches. You know, things like that. So I think I think a lot of donors do do it again. Some donors, though, that's why we can't tell. They realize that there's so much more work involved than what they originally thought. And and I tell my recipients, listen, these gals are busy. They're usually school, work, this, that, you know. And I don't think they realize, you know, that they really have to make themselves available. And unfortunately, because it's all biology, we never know when that availability is going to be. They doctors give you like a range of three days, but you know, they can't say with any certainty. And that's what makes it really difficult. Uh, so I would say the majority probably do it once. I think most donors don't do six times. I think the average is four if they're going to be a repeat donor, because they realize, you know, it's just, it's a lot of work. Uh, I do, I, I I didn't know what the average was. That's interesting. Um, yeah. We are encouraged, I think it's a guideline, but I think most clinics abide by this, that they, and most agencies, that they can only give up to six times. But uh, what I, I see, and again, I, this is only uh, uh, anecdotal, this is not at all scientific, is that that often they will, at least a second time, because the first time there is the fear associated of, of the whole thing and what it is, but after you've done it, that the fear part is taken out and it doesn't feel yeah. that onerous to many of them, uh, and therefore they're more willing to do it at least a second time because uh, you know they know how much money is involved and they know uh, how much work is involved and they can make that cost assessment. So. Yeah, and, and I have to tell you, even if a donor decides she doesn't want to do it, usually she will do it again for a genetic sibling, for recipients she's done it before. Okay, well that you, boy, that was just perfect timing. Because my next <laughs> question was, I, and honestly, guys, I did not, I did not feed her that question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the uh, uh, the the idea for a genetic sibling uh, and how that fa- factors into the distinctions between clinics, agencies, and banks. Stephanie, since you gave me that great segue, I'll, I'll let you uh, start with that. Uh, how that plays out between the ideas of which, whether you choose a, a clinic agency or a bank. 
Yeah, because Catherine's absolutely right. You can get 15 eggs, but at the end of the day, you don't know how many embryos you're going to get. And a lot of times, you know, I have I have recipients, clients who have got you know a lot of embryos, and they've got a child, and and then you know they've they've gone through them, and for whatever reason, the frozens haven't worked, and so they reach out either through a clinic and clinics. I've done this with clinics too, or an agency, and they say yes, we would like you know a genetic sibling, and even if the donor really, you know, didn't love it the first time for a genetic sibling, most of the time the donor will say, all right, I'll do it again. I, I, I cannot imagine, and maybe Catherine can help me out here, that that really being an option with an egg bank, I think I think it would be if you, um, you know, decided that you were going to, you know, get a genetic sibling really soon, like in the next two years. But to reach out five years later, four years later, I just don't know, since they're so new, what kind of information they've gathered and what they have asked the donor to do. I think the donor really is going into being a donor for an egg bank, and she's doing it that time, and then that's it. She's She's done. Uh, well, yeah. Although uh, Catherine, wouldn't they? Wouldn't the, the intended parents, if this was very important to them, uh, have the option, assuming that there were additional eggs to be purchased? Couldn't they purchase the eggs? Let's say they get two eggs uh, uh, from you know donor X Y Z, um, and uh, that at the same time they buy the two eggs from X Y Z, they could b- purchase two more to have and keep frozen. Sure, you absolutely could at the outset. Now you're going to have, you know, you're paying storage fees for those eggs for a number of years until you decide you're ready to try for your sibling. But it certainly is an option. Um, Another option is to buy several batches of eggs at the outset and then have all of those, try to fertilize all of those so that you're then freezing embryos and freeze those embryos and try to use those down the road for a sibling project. But Stephanie's absolutely right. It's going to be monumentally more difficult trying to track down a donor with an egg bank and getting her to donate again for a sibling project versus if you have gone through an agency and you've got a lot of that flexibility that is built into the matches that are with an agency. Okay, yeah. So it, it kind of cuts, but it's something to think about. Uh, uh, and one of the hard things, too, at the beginning, particularly if you're transferring two, you may end up with twins, high likelihood that you will, and you may think your family is complete at that point, but when you're first purchasing your eggs, you're not real clear on, on whether you're going to end up with any, you know, with any uh, children from this cycle. So um, it's hard to plan in advance. Another distinction uh, between, uh, this is less between clinics and agencies, but more between uh, using frozen eggs and using fresh eggs, and that is the convenience of timing of uh, uh, the, the transfer uh, and for some people, the convenience is something to that, that they that they seek. Uh, Stephanie, can you explain just kind of briefly how that would play out? Um, what, what I'm talking about when I say convenience. So you're talking about the convenience of the transfer, like when they want to have right. it. Yeah, well, and scheduling cycles and syncing cycles. Well, the easiest one is, you know, obviously if you've got the egg bank, then you don't really, you're not, you're not having to sync with somebody. So the convenience, or if you're, you know, doing a frozen cycle, frozen cycles again are much shorter. Um, if you're doing a fresh cycle, then you are syncing, you know, two different people, yourself or the surrogate, gestational carrier and the donor. Um, doctors do it all the time though. It sounds really, really complicated, but for a doctor's office, they usually make it work much better 
better than you ever think that it was going to be. They really, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I, but I know when I was cycling, it was almost like magic to me when I was doing my surrogate cycle. Like, wow, how did they do that? (laughs) Called drugs. I mean, I'll just answer the question. It's drugs. (laughs) It really is. Yeah, we can. uh, Our bodies are controlled. Um, You are listening to Creating a Family. I'd like to take a moment right now to thank a few more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their absolute generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the resources at Creating a Family. We have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors, Only 1 in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They were the pioneers in offering embryo donation services to clients throughout the world through its Snowflakes Embryo Adoption Program. Over 350 babies have been born through this program. I'd like to uh, move on to talk about surrogacy. Um, And although we did not get this question, uh, Stephanie, when I was, uh, we were getting ready to, to film our interview uh, last week, I asked you what was the number one question you got. And, uh, and I also hear this question a lot. So even though we didn't get it specific for the show, I want to talk about it. And that is one of the concerns that people have when they uh, are considering uh, using a surrogate to create their family is what type of maternal rights Will the surrogate have, and and if the, assuming the family wants to not have the surrogate have maternal rights, what type of protections do they have? Yeah, I was asked that question yesterday, actually. So it does definitely come up often. Um, you need to work in a state that that has a statute, really, or case law, but a statute is better that says that you know if you follow these these, you know, X, Y, Z, you get a contract, like California, you get a contract, separate uh, legal representation, meaning an attorney for the surrogate, attorney for the intent parents. It's signed and notarized before that surrogate starts her injectable medication. The intended parents are presumed the parent. So you need to be really careful and work in a state that is surrogate friendly. That's, that's, that's the number one. Okay. Uh, can you roll off the top of your head a number of states that are, uh, if like so the top five, top ten states that are surrogate friendly? Yeah, there's California, there's Illinois, there's Texas, um, Arkansas. Utah is actually surrogate friendly, but they're, they have a really onerous and um, unfortunately it's expensive for the intended parents um, statute. Um, so I don't recommend that. Florida is, is fairly good. Oregon, um, you know, is good. Even though um, they have a little bit of a law, they don't. Re- I don't think their statute is really as formed as, as good as it should be. Um, they really need to, you know, kind of beef that up. But it's been practiced for years. Colorado actually doesn't have a laws for or against. But again, surrogacy has been practiced for years. But for the best protection for the intended parents, um, really you need to work in a state where uh, there's there's laws to protect you. All right. And uh, Catherine, does it matter whether you are using a gestational surrogate or a traditional surrogate? Uh, I, I think in terms of the not that many people are using traditional surrogates anymore, and yet then I will hear um, from someone that says, in fact, at ASRM, I heard from a uh, uh, an attorney actually that uh, still has, a, according to him, a fairly thriving practice in 
uh, uh, traditional surrogacy, which I, I was unaware of. So, Catherine, does it, uh, uh, is there a distinction that we have to make between, and perhaps that begs the question of what is the distinction between gestational uh, surrogacy and traditional surrogacy? Well, of course, gestational surrogacy is where you're going to be using an egg that did not come from the surrogate. So it can be either the intended mother's egg or an egg from an egg donor, as long as it's not the surrogate's egg. And traditional surrogacy is the exact opposite. It's going to involve the surrogate's own egg. The laws in some states distinguish between the two and treat them completely differently. For example, in Massachusetts, which I would also add to the list of surrogacy-friendly states, we have different laws that are going to come into place depending on whether it's the surrogate's egg or not her egg. However, this is really a state-by-state analysis. And like Stephanie said, you need to be thinking about the laws of the state before, before you even start the surrogacy. Because in some states, if, for example, New Hampshire, both gestational and traditional surrogacy are going to come under the same set of laws. So understanding that from the outset is going to best allow you to plan depending on what type of surrogacy that you want to go forward with. So they treat, under New Hampshire, and I'm sure there are other states that do this as well, they treat traditional and gestational surrogate the same as far as the requirements for uh, uh, maternal rights or the the rights of the surrogate towards uh, um, uh, parental rights? That's right. And we actually have something in our statute that, you know, this is going to sound really scary. I don't want people to be scared off by this. But we have a provision in our statute that says that the surrogate, whether gestational or traditional, can change her mind and keep the child within 72 hours after after birth. And I know that sounds really scary. You're right. It does. (laughs) (laughs) The reality is that, you know, with any surrogacy, you you know you need to be going into this at the outset with a properly screened surrogate because a properly screened surrogate is going to be somebody who's going into this to be a surrogate and who's not looking to have additional children of her own and with a properly screened surrogate it's not going to be an issue because um the reality is that you know we we look to states that are surrogacy friendly and we try to find surrogates in those particular states to do surrogacy The problem is that any surrogate in the United States can hop in her car and drive to New York, Michigan, New Jersey, any of the unfriendly surrogate states, and give birth in that place. So even in a state where you have surrogacy-friendly laws, you're still putting a lot of trust in that surrogate to do the right thing and to cooperate with the entire process and to give birth in the place that she promised she was going to give birth. And so this from the outset and make sure that your surrogate is properly screened and is going into this arrangement with a full understanding of exactly what surrogacy entails and with the right mindset in order to do this. And that initial screening, I just cannot emphasize strongly enough how incredibly important that is. And when people skip that that part, and this often happens in traditional surrogacies because with traditional surrogacy, you don't need a doctor's involvement, so it's easy to skip steps. That's where people run into problems. And so right at the outset is just as crucial to get that surrogate screened as it is to pick a state that's surrogacy-friendly. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think uh, the screening is absolutely important. Um, Stephanie, just mention briefly some of the things you want to make certain of. 
when you are choosing a surrogate, I'll get you started, and that is you want her to have already be parenting children. Yes, have give, have a healthy birth and have those children at home. I mean, you really definitely do want her to, you know, not only have a stable environment, of course, but, you know, it's not enough to have given birth. She needs to, you know, be parenting her children and have her own life, her own family. And then you need to find out why. Why does she want to be a surrogate? Yes, the money's great, but it's too much work. Um, You know, surrogates sometimes, especially with the economy, all these women said, oh, yes, I can be a surrogate, I can be an egg donor. But it's not like sperm donation, you know. Sperm donation, for the most part, that's a really easy process, right? We all get that. This is a medical procedure. And I have to say that, you know, the surrogates, they meet with the agency. If there's an agency involved, they meet with a psychologist. They meet with the doctor multiple times. They, then they meet with their attorney, an attorney before the medical procedure even begins, so it's a long, drawn-out process. Yes, you could do it, you know, within 90 days. But, you know, for the most part, it takes a fairly, you know, fairly amount of time to do this. And so surrogates need to know that, that it, it definitely is going to be work, um, you know, involved. And, and, and it is always a good idea. Screening is so key. Catherine brought up a really good point. I, I always forget because I'm in California with this large state. But, you know, you're right, the East Coast they can easily move from state to state, whereas in California, unless you're on the border, you know, you're you're fairly stuck, you know, in California. I mean, there's Nevada, but, uh, you know, and Nevada actually is very surrogate-friendly. I just forgot they just passed a statute. So I really do forget that, you know, much smaller states and much more mobility. I have to say, though, for the most part, when a surrogate wants to be a surrogate, She's committed. I mean, really and truly, you know, uh, people always ask me, you know, they want to know what, you know, how many times. I think they really want to know how many times the surrogates kept the baby, and that's very, very rare. Surrogates have their own family. They don't they don't want the baby for the most part. They want to say hello when that baby's born, and then they want to say goodbye and put that baby in those parents' arms, and then they want to take a big nap. <laughs> and be glad that it's somebody else getting up in the middle of the night and not them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then they want to go home and kind of get their body back and be with their family. Um, I, from what I see, most people use a surrogacy uh, agency to find a surrogate, but I, it occurs to me that that may not be the case. There may be in other parts of the uh, of the world, the country, not world, um, that uh, clinics provide their own. Catherine, do you see most people using agencies, or, 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 or do they are there clinics who um, find surrogates for people as well? Um, I'm not aware of any clinics in the New England area, and I could be wrong about this, but I'm not aware of any that will match surrogates with intended parents. So I primarily work with people who are either matched to an agency or who find each other perhaps on one of the many websites that are available on to help match surrogates with prospective parents. And you know, when you're working with an agency, you know, you just like with egg donation, you're going to be paying more, but you're going to have that agency basically holding your hand through the whole process and guiding you, screening your surrogate, doing all of those very important things through this lengthy process. When people are matching on their own, with a stranger, it can be much more, um, you know, you've, you've got those issues. Nerve-wracking. Yeah. Terrifying. This is a stranger. Yeah. Who was making sure that this stranger is 
properly motivated and doing the surrogacy for the right reasons. Because really, you know, every once in a while there's going to be some horror story about surrogacy that pops up on the news. And when we look at those stories, it's always going to – I can't think of a single one that involved a properly screened surrogate. It's really the, the lack of screening that is an issue. And so I would encourage intended parents who want to match independently with a surrogate, while that is perfectly a, a reasonable option – you need to have somebody screening that surrogate properly for you, be it your attorney's office or somebody else doing that screening in lieu of agency screening. And that, well, one that of the, really is going to... Well, one of the hard parts is who do you find to screen if you're doing it on your own? Because the reality is you need a trained screener. This is just not the, you know, a general family, uh, uh, family therapist who knows the issues. And so another, uh, another reason for... Um, using an agency, it seems to me, would be to access screeners and, and psychologists who are experienced in this area and who know the red flags and know the questions to ask and know how to help and prepare the surrogate because uh, that's a skill set that not every therapist or social worker has. Uh, so another yeah. agency. Uh, so, yeah. Um, the last minutes we have, what I'd like to do is uh, talk about when – uh, many in our audience would be are going to be in the position or are in the position now of finding a surrogate through an agency. Now, we've just, Catherine did a great job of kind of summarizing the distinctions between agency or finding somebody on your own. But if they are uh, wanting to use an uh, agency, what are some questions? How do you choose an agency? What are the questions you should ask uh, to, to determine uh, which agency would be a best, the best fit for you? Uh, Stephanie, I'd like to begin with you on that one. You know, the agencies all, you know, definitely all have their, you know, pluses and minuses. There's some agencies that, you know, are, are, are kind of slower moving. They're going to, you know, they have, you know, processes in place and they're not going to deviate from the process. So if you're the type of parent, you're like, okay, I'm going to an agency, I'm getting a surrogate, I, 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 I want to end my year on a high note or start my year on a high note and I'm ready now because you have to be ready to give up that control and, you know, have somebody else carry your child. Um, so when you when you move on, you you if you if you want to move quickly, then you don't want to work with that agency. You know, um, there are some agencies that are much better at moving faster. There are some agencies that are very surrogate centered. Um, you know, and then there's some agencies that are very intended parent centered, and there's some agencies that try to be for both intended parent and the donor and the surrogate. So there's there's all different types of agencies. So you really just you really just need to do your research. And again, I would interview them, ask questions. Doctors are going to refer agencies that they are most comfortable with, but just because the doctor is most comfortable with those agencies doesn't mean you necessarily will be, right? It's just like a doctor. Well, that's okay. Good point. Okay, Catherine, any other uh, uh, thoughts of questions to ask or how you can distinguish between one agency versus another? Well, surrogacy is a, a tremendous financial investment. And when you're working with an agency, of course, that agency is going to charge a fee for their services. Now, what sometimes happens is that intended parents will get matched with a surrogate and that surrogate will fall through for whatever reason they just maybe they have fibroids or something in their uterus and they medically can't be cleared well what happens at that point will the agency give you a refund a partial refund will the money that you've invested be fully transferable to another surrogate how does that work you know the financial implications are something that's very important for 
intended parents to be thinking about because if once you've invested this money with an agency, it's a lot of money and it can be difficult for intended parents to, you know, if they have to pull out from that agency and go work with another agency, that can be a very big financial hit. So just make sure you, you know, you understand, you know, all of the financial implications of your own contract with the agency when you decide to work with them. That's an excellent point because Catherine brings that up. You know, you just kind of, when you go into that, you just assume that your surrogate's given birth and she's going to pass that screening, you know, and she may not. Yeah, and, and right, and then and can the money be transferred to the next cycle? To the next yeah, surrogate, next cycle, or do I have to pay more money? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, Stephanie, when you mentioned uh, a, a, an agency being surrogate-centered versus intended parent-centered, how can the average person tell the distinction between those two? That's tough. So I would ask questions like, you know, maybe make some scenarios up. You know, if if the surrogate, if there's an issue between the surrogate and the intended parent, like maybe the surrogate wants to travel out of state, or you know, or I don't want my surrogate to go to do, you know, to to you know, paint her nails or have hair dye or whatever. How do you handle that situation, agency? What do you do? You know, do you do you have one person for the intended parent and one person for the surrogate? You know, what what do you do for that situation? And you know, um, typically, and this, you know, there's great agencies run by surrogates, but typically, if an agency is run by a former surrogate, they're going to be very pro surrogate. So. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to be for the intended parent. It just means that, you know, you might want to do a little bit more, you know, question and answers with them about how they're going to, how they're going to handle your issues and are, are they going to, you know, give equal weight to your issue and equal weight to the surrogate issue. Most of the cases, though, people always ask me, you know, oh, my gosh, like I told you, you know, is, is, tell me when the surrogates run off of the baby. And I always tell my clients, the biggest problem is when the parents and the surrogates don't get along. If you want a lot of contact, you want to pick a surrogate with a lot of contact. If you don't want a lot of contact, don't pick a surrogate that wants to be your best friend. That's just not going to work. That's a really good, that's a great note to end on. That's a really good suggestion. Um, mm-hmm. Make sure that you're compatible to begin with, which is something that Catherine keeps reminding us that this is what we need to think of before. Um, we actually select a surrogate. Let me just stop a moment and say if you have enjoyed this show and want to help us grow, please do us a favor and rate this podcast on iTunes. Uh, You can get to the iTunes account by going to our website, the radio page, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Click on the iTunes button and you can go there. It truly only takes you a moment. Thank you so much, Stephanie Caballero and Catherine Tucker, for being our guest today on the Creating a Family show. I know that uh, let me, if, if people want to participate in a discussion on some of the topics of this show, I welcome you to uh, ch- tune into the blog tomorrow, creatingafamily.org slash blog, and, uh, and join in the discussion because I'll be blogging on this tomorrow. Uh, I know that people are going to want to get more information about uh, both Catherine and Stephanie. To do that, for Catherine Tucker, you can go to her website, Tucker, T-U-C-K-E-R, legal.com. To get in touch with Stephanie Caballero, you can go to her website, surrogacy-lawyer.com. Thank you so much for being our guest today, and thank you all for listening, and I will look forward to seeing you next week.
The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and leather gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's work, man. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.